0: From Selma, Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Katherine Tucker Wyndham?
1: Can't believe I'm ninety-two, and but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, that when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening, and it's a rare thing these days listening, listening to the human voice, listening to one person talking to another person, listening. We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My daddy said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion. <laughs> and the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning and laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh, laugh at ourselves, laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says, but we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people, and you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important, L, is loving, loving, that God put us here to love each other. To enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says, I love you, more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with, I love you.
2: True Tales you. You. Radio coming to you live from WSCA's West End Studio, nine oh nine Islington Street, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. True Tales Radio is a place for local people to share their true stories with our listeners and our audience and our TV watchers. <laughs> um, and to come and be a part of this which is your local independent community radio station that we're so lucky to have here in the seacoast of New Hampshire. Tonight we have six storytellers on the theme of dreams. And with all that said, I'm going to pass the mic on to our uh, MC, Pat Spaulding, to introduce our storytellers.
3: Thanks, Amy. Hi, everybody.
2: Good crowd here tonight. We've got a great lineup of
3: tellers. We're going to start with Ronnie Tomeo. He tells us that he was a big game hunter in Delaware for 10 years. But sad to say, he only managed to find two Monopoly sets and a ping pong paddle in a (laughs) dumpster behind Walmart. (laughs) Funny guy, that Ronnie. (laughs) Um, So when not scouting for big games in (laughs) dumpsters... He is the longtime co host of Don't Diss My Ability, a bi weekly program broadcast right here in Portsmouth Community Radio. He is dedicated to giving voice to those who may suffer disabilities so that they won't have to suffer in silence. His fifth book of stories is due to be released soon. Tonight, he will share a story that has to do with a dream of his mother's that involved his own disability. It's titled My Mother's Dream. Come on up, Ronnie.
4: Is this the right height? You think it's okay? Well okay. Well sitting, what do you think? Is there a vote sitting or standing up? Standing? Okay. That's my wife. There's no there's no voting in a marriage. I don't this is a story, um, I hate to tell. I hated to tell all my life, and uh, never would tell it. It's about my mother. It's her dream, uh, but it had to do with me. And I guess I heard it so much as a kid that uh, I would grit my teeth and uh, try to get out of there. Um, I uh, was born legally blind, and uh, my mother was uh, recently divorced, and uh, We found ourselves back in a little river town on the Hudson River in Beacon, New York, me and my brother. And recently I came across a picture. I looked to be about three, and my brother was about a year and a half older, so he's a little bit bigger. And I just noticed in this picture, I had seen it before over the years, but then it just dawned on me the significance of it. He held my, he was holding my hand. And I says, oh my God, this is because I didn't see that well back then. And I didn't realize that. And I guess the point is that at a certain point in your life, you realize things that, for whatever reason, that you were blind to. And that was me. I was uh, blind to a lot of things physically and uh, but my mother couldn't accept that and 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 she looked all over uh, uh, when when she had time because uh, she uh, worked in a factory um, and uh, worked long hours and i remember uh, being with my grandmother more than my mother so me and my uh, talk about radio uh, John, you would love this, but uh we I remember listening to the Lone Ranger in the dark living room and my grandmother would be knitting and me and my brother would be sitting there and uh hearing these great tales on the radio. Um, ironically here I am back on the radio but uh, Yeah. So uh but my mother started taking me around the doctors and everybody she could think of and they would say, Well it's He's just legally blind, you know. It's just, that's it. And uh, you're going to have to live with that. But that's for non-dreamers. Living with it is for non-dreamers. My mother was a dreamer. And she had she just pictured it in her mind that my son's going to see. And that's it. And um, one of the things that started to help, and, I, and I'm, I want you to understand, I'm not telling you I'm telling you my version of what my mother told me, so I don't, and with my mother it was, so you gotta take it at that. I'm not saying it's true, I'm not saying if you have that same uh, 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 issue with with sight that I had that you should out, run out and do what my mother did or, or follow that path, I don't know f- fact from fiction here. I, but what's not fiction, is an incredible toughness and desire that I was going to do everything I could do and, and I would not be stopped. So <clears throat> she started taking me to this local chiropractor. Now you have to understand this is when I'm 68, so we're talking something about 60 years ago. Chiropractors back then were, they were officially uh, seen as a cult. Yes, that's the official stance by the American Medical Association. Chiropractic was a cult. Um, so uh, and uh, I started to get better, and slowly I started to get better. And then one day, um, the the chiropractor told my mother, I says, "said Mary, you're spending all your money here." And yeah, I'm a good chiropractor, but the best chiropractor and, and medical doctors, and, uh, that I can, I know of that could help your son is out in Iowa. At that time, there was only one chiropractor school. It was out in Davenport, Iowa. So, uh, so and they have a again. That's his best chance. So she says, "Okay, I'll do it." The problem was, like her brothers and sisters, it was eight of them. Uh, Depression era, uh, they all had to drop out seventh and eighth grade to go to work, <coughs> and um, so she had to get a, a GED. Be- even before she left, she had to get a GED, uh, and um, so off we went. We drove in a Nash. Why? If you're if you're laughing in a Nash, that means you're you're over a certain age point. <laughs> Everyone else is thinking, you mean John Nash, the interviewer in the next room? Wow. John Nash doesn't give rides. You know, I asked him for a ride. He wouldn't give me one. But, uh, so we were out driving there and uh, we get there and I immediately realized that life is going to be a little bit tougher than I've ever remembered it. Because I say we came from this huge family. My mother had, you know, seven brothers and sisters. And there was every holiday there was... Uh, family galore and uh you were never alone and you always had cousins to play with and all of this stuff all of a sudden we're out in this little dank apartment in iowa and i remember the first christmas and uh, christmas back then i didn't i would have to hire a van and you know they don't hire vans to
5: six-year-olds <laughs> to
4: take away all the presents you know and all of a sudden I uh, get one little present in my hand, and so does my brother, and that was it. That was Christmas. So I realized, boy, this is going to be a different world. Um, so uh, next thing I know, we weren't there that long, and she did a very wise thing. She could buy a house dirt cheap back then. So her way of get, getting, uh, making this financially possible was to buy the house, get a mortgage, and then rent rooms to other students, and that's what she did. And so... When I look upon this, in the last couple of years, I look look on these memories and I say, this is not doable by a human being. So she had to take, back then chiropractors had to take the science courses, chemistry, physiology, uh, anatomy, all of that, plus their chiropractic courses. Uh, they don't do that now. You, you go and get all your science done and you just go to a chiropractic college for chiropractic. And uh and this is somebody with a GED and so she had to do that she had to take care of the house and she had to work and uh and I just you know when you grow up normal is how you grow up everybody's wearing a pink hat and whistling old songs you think that's normal so you don't know the difference I says This is ridiculous. Now I say, this is ridiculous. A human being couldn't do this because she would come back at 9 o'clock at night. Now, why don't I remember this? Because that's when Charlie Chan movies would get over at 9 o'clock. And you only knew who did it until the last 30 seconds. So the idea was that somebody had to stand by the window and watch for my mother's car pulling up, and the lights would be off. And just as you, 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 you find out who actually did the deed, you got to get in the bed and shut the light off and pretend you're sleeping, so that was their schedule uh go to school, work, get home at nine, maybe study, study on the weekends and um yeah um and that's where she spent four years and i to the, and i didn't in it man, the thing that really broke me up was years ago a few years ago, I was at my aunt's I have a ninety one year old aunt who's also tough as these old bricks in here. I mean it's such a <laughs> tough family and she said, "You know, you remember when you flew out you and your brother, and you know you were seeing better and you were you you know uh your eyes are better, we were all happy, but your mother uh all of a sudden um We thought we were going on this great adventure, that we were flying to Connecticut to stay with my aunt and uncle. And we thought that was great. And uh, I didn't know my mother had a breakdown. I didn't know that. And I didn't know that until, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago, that my aunt, you know, maybe she thought I was old enough to take the news or something. (laughs) Okay. So, but still that didn't stop her. She got back on her feet, She came back to New York, and by the time we were reunited, she had a going practice. Became an enormously successful chiropractor. Uh, uh, Kept working on me and and kept telling this damn story over and over again. (laughs) And I would try to get out of the room and stuff like that. And and so it was hard for me for most of my life to appreciate this story. Hard for me to understand that to understand, and I think this is a message for people with disabilities because that's what our show's all about. You think you're not tough enough. Think about the people in your life who, who you probably know similar people who, who go through hell and are still on their feet and can do amazing things. And So, you know, we're tougher than we think we are. And she really drove that message home to me. So, Mom, I'm telling this story, you know, <laughs> a story I would never tell.
3: <laughs> so, Ronnie, how do you see now? Uh, do, you, do you see well? I think we'd probably be curious about that. Where are that. you, Patty? <laughs> <laughs> I'm here, I'm here. <laughs> Yeah. Um, You know, I have to wear reading glasses and stuff. Okay. That's great. Wow. Didn't know. (laughs) Next up, we have Sylvia Olson. She has lived in six different states, but she likes the new ones best. New Jersey, New York, and New Hampshire. (laughs) While working in western New York, she devoted much of her life to public service and social justice. Today, she's relaxing in New Hampshire, climbing mountains, walking the beach, and writing short stories and novels about her life experiences and the people she came to know. This true tale is about an an eerie dream that Sylvia had many years ago, and she still cannot forget. It's titled Crash.
0: (laughs) So, it's December 12, 1996, and it's one of these rainy windy kind of scary nights where the the windows are rattling and the house is shaking on the foundation. Uh, It's in western New York up by Lake Ontario and uh, there's a cold winter wind blowing across 40 miles of open fresh water from Canada, And it's mixing up with some warm air Coming up from the Gulf of Mexico And maybe out from the Midwest Because that's the way it is out there And it gets really crazy So I go to bed that night Feeling all the vibrations And the wind Then In the middle of the night I wake up And there's something going on So I get up and I look out my back window out in the parking lot behind my house. And it's a big parking lot for the apartment house behind me. <clears throat> and, in the, uh, and there's people walking around out with all the cars. And I'm thinking, What's, what are all these people doing out here? There's never anybody out there. It's like, like there's a festival or something going on. <laughs> so I go outside. And these people are looking up at the sky. And they're, they're pointing and I said, I thought, well, what's, what are they pointing at? And he said, look, look, the sky's all kind of glowing, which in the city and usually is kind of glowy out there in the big city. But it's usually kind of lit up and I can see the hill at the park and there's like the skele- skeletons of the bare trees against the night sky. And everyone's pointing and they're saying, it's finally happened. There's been a crash. See, to a mile to the west of me, there's a big airport. And there was always planes and jets flying over, and we were thinking, someday we're going to have a crash. And I guess this was it. There's a crash, and you can see the light from the crash is lighting up the sky. Something's happened. I thought, oh, that's awful. So I go, anyway, I go back into my house, back to the kitchen door, and there's smoke rolling in. Over the floor, I look down, and take just a few inches off the floor, there's this gray, thick smoke rolling in through the door. So I close the door. I go out to the front of the house where the, for the front door. There's smoke rolling through that door also. So I close it. Now there's something that's really strange. I can hear a voice somewhere in my house. Voice, a man's voice, young man. He's going, crash, 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 over and over. That's really creepy. Well, I walk to the back of the house. Then I close the window there. Walk up the steps, go into my bathroom. Close those windows. I can still hear the voice. Then I go close. Go to my um, daughter's bedroom close her windows, go back into my bedroom. I'm closing the windows, walking around the room, and I can still hear the voice crash, crash, crash. And then I get to the back window. This is the same window that i had been looking out earlier, overlooks the parking lot. And I can't see the parking lot. There's three faces in the window now. It's a very small window, three faces. And it's real foggy all around the faces. Maybe it's the smoke. Well, the first face that I look at on my left is a young man, dark hair. He's just looking, staring ahead and looking at me sadly, not saying anything. The face in the middle, I don't see his features as well. He's kind of obscured by the fog and the smoke. He's not saying anything either. The young man, the face of the young man to the right of me, he's staring right at me and he's gone crash, 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 crash. And then I wake up, this time for real, I'm in my bed, I wake up and I can hear the wind blowing and the tree shaking And there's no, there's no faces there. And I lay there you know, my heart's thumping. And I think, it's December. My windows and doors aren't open. There's no way I could even walk into my backyard, into the parking lot because there's a big fence between the parking lot and my house. There's no way I could have gotten back there. This, this could not happen. I can't even see the park from my house either. There's no hill back there. How could I see trees on a hill? There are trees back there, but there's no, there's, I can't see the park. A little too far away. So I'm like, Whoa. But I go back to sleep, and when I wake up in the morning, I tell my uh, 14-year-old daughter about the dream, and she goes, "Well, whatever you do, don't tell anybody else about this dream, because you sound like you're nuts."
5: <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> so I take her to school, drop her off at school, and uh, go into work. And of course, the first thing I have to do is tell my co-workers Tom and Phil about my dream and they look at me like Sylvia she's pretty nuts she gets a lot of strange dreams so of course then a little while later I go up to my other coworker Rich and I tell him about the dream and he looks at me saying Sylvia's got some, got some really strange dreams so a little later I'm getting ready for my toast and juice break at the school of, or at the at their cafeteria at work, and uh I'm standing in line, and of course, we have sort of just like right here, we have a little you know a little newsstand with the newspapers there, and I'm just kind of glancing at waiting in line, and on the side there's a little two paragraph three paragraph story last night at nine o'clock, there was a crash, forty miles southeast of the city in Penyan. Just where everybody was looking. There was a helicopter crash. A hunter, it was last day of hunting season, a hunter had fallen out of his um, tree stand and fractured his pelvis. And the Mercy Flight helicopter came and landed on this hill to pick him up. And they got him in the helicopter And he secured in it, and they took off. And within seconds, there was a huge blast of wind, and they crashed into the side of the hill. And the pilot, the medic, and the hunter were all killed, three men. And the people on the ground said that the sky was lit up all around them. They could see it against the trees for miles and miles and that was pretty scary of course. so I went back and I told Tom and Phil about it and they looked at me like even more horrified and I told my other coworker, Rich and he was like oh my god he didn't even say anything they just stared at me so that night I'm watching the news and I find out that the helicopter wasn't just on wasn't on its way to the airport, but it was on its way to the hospital, a half a mile to the east of me. Strong Memorial Where I, where I was born, coincidentally. And again, that the whole sky had been lit up and people could see it from miles around. The next day I see in the newspaper I see the pictures of their faces photos and I know it's them and it was the medic who was telling me, who was calling to me and telling me about the crash. Well, later on I I called up my brother and my brother uh, is also a first responder and ambulance driver and it turned out that He had met the medic just a few months before at a, like a training conference for first responders, and he said, yeah, he was a really nice guy. I really liked him. had a real good conversation with him. And I said, well, Randy, why me? Why did this happen to me? And my brother, he happens to believe that women have second sense, that they have a special gift, and he knows it. I'm one of those women. At least he believes so. At least he knows I'm different. And he said to me, well, Sylvia, I guess when they got there, there was nobody around. You can imagine ghosts going through the ER and nobody could see them. And they wanted to tell somebody. So my brother said, well, They they completed their mission. They came. No one was around, but you, your mind was the only one that was open. And that was my dream.
2: The time is 7 o'clock p.m. You are listening to WSCALP, 106.1 FM, Portsmouth Community Radio, broadcasting from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. You're listening to True Tales Radio. I'm Amy Antonucci, And back up to introduce more storytellers, here is Pat Spaulding. Next up, we have Aaron Pappas. She lives with her amazing and
3: supportive family, her words, in Dover, New Hampshire. Is, I not them. <laughs> pardon me? Oh,
6: no, never mind. Okay. <laughs> um,
3: she's about to come. She's a 31-year-old survivor of childhood bone cancer. She was diagnosed when she was two and a half years old, and although she has gone through many difficult years of chemotherapy and radiation, she has not let herself be defined by this disease. She's an artist who enjoys photography, painting, acting, drawing, writing, and jewelry making, and has won several awards for her work. This past January, Erin was interviewed here on the station on the Don't Dis My Ability program, and she's returned to tell us her story of an out-of-body experience she had while watching her own operation as she listened to one of her favorite singing artists being played in the background. The title of her story is Sade, above the operating table. Come on up,
6: Okay, well, I had written everything out. Thank you. I had written everything out and had my friend Don help me, you know, edit and everything. But I guess now I'm just going to just freely talk. Um, it was... In 1994, and um, I had a screw that was from holding part of my hip together, or whatever is left of my hip, together, and it was hanging on some of my nerves. So my doctor had um, had said, "Well, why don't you, you know, come in and we'll we'll remove it, and hopefully that will relieve some of your pain." So my mom and I went and. I ended up um you know the the surgery you know going through triage and everything and and um just sitting in the in the room before and getting a little nervous, but still you know ex- i don't know it kind of excited because I grew up in hospital, so it was kind of like going home for me,
5: <laughs> you know
6: so <laughs> it was kind of a, a much needed little vacation, as you could say. But, um, so after I had my IV and everything put in and, and I ended up, um, you know, they wheel me in to the, to the operating room and they give me the anesthesia. They put me under and everything. And, um, about probably, I'm guessing it was probably about like 15 or 20 minutes, um, but I I had this out-of-body experience where I kind of floated above myself and I could see my whole body um, laying there on the table. And part of my, you know, where my hip was, it was all open. So it was really kind of strange to see, you know, my, my bones and everything just open like that. But um, so... I'm, I'm laying there and I can hear Sade, who's one of my favorite musical artists of all time, you know, and, and I can hear that playing. And then I can see my doctors standing over me and they're, you know, trying to pull away like some nerves and some muscle tissue and, and things like that. And, um, if they, they were talking about going to Bermuda, for a holiday. <laughs> and. Yeah. And so I'm laying there. Well floating above myself. While I'm watching myself lay there. And. um, It was just really funny. Because they're like. Oh yeah. Well which beach are you going to go to. And you know, are you planning on going to this restaurant. Or that restaurant. And maybe do some shell collecting. You know. Just all kinds of. Just things that you would think of. You know going on vacation. So it was pretty funny because years later I ended up going to Bermuda and I was like, Oh, well now I know what they were actually talking about. (laughs) But, um, so, you know, it was just great. And then they're just chit chatting, you know, banter back and forth and everything. And I ended up, you know, the, the operation went smoothly. You know, I, I saw them sewing myself up, which was really, really bizarre. And, um, so as I'm, I'm, waking up, and I'm wheeled into um, the recovery room, I'm laying there, and one of the first things I said when my doctors came in to be, you know, check on me and everything, I was like, so who's going to Bermuda? <laughs> and they were like, what? And I said, "And that's a great musical choice. Thank you for playing Sade. And they were like, what? <laughs> How in the heck did you even, what? So they were really puzzled, but it was just it was pretty cool and um so we laughed about that and apparently they had a really good vacation
5: <laughs> so that was
6: wonderful <laughs> but um yeah that's pretty much my my dream story mm-hmm. sorry it's not 10 <laughs> minutes long but <laughs>
3: Wow, that's pretty exceptional. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I had a little uh, out-of-body experience in a dream once where I was, I went out the window of my bedroom and I felt the rain coming down. And then I sailed back in and um, it was raining. And it, it really felt, I was looking down. I mean, I've never really heard, I've heard about them. But that's as close as I've come. You were really there. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yours was amazing.
6: Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.
3: I'm going to introduce Kathy Wolf next. She has resided, and I'm not going to tell about my dream. I was going to t- say a little bit about a dream I had, but yeah, we don't have time. So another time. Uh, Kathy ha- resided in, uh, in the seacoast since 1976. She's a writer who's been and still is an activist. Kathy does a lot of other stuff, too. She lives in Kittery Foreside with two cats, Tux and Edo. I've met the pair who together do look like a tuxedo. (laughs) (laughs) Kathy's, (laughs) her current short-term dream is to buy a camper and hit the road for a few months. Say, isn't that all of our dreams? I mean, if we aren't too tired, we all have that same dream. (laughs) Kathy says about her story tonight, some people remember their dreams, some don't. Some only recall them as they awake and lose them before they get out of bed. But some dreams remain vivid and disturbing, like Sylvia's, for years. (laughs) Okay, so now we're going to hear another one. Let's listen to A Dream I Cannot Forget by Kathy.
7: Yet one more. I don't remember my dreams. No matter how vivid they are, I wake up, I repeat them in my head and then I forget them. But there was one dream I will never forget even though it's been more than 40 years. It was around the same time I stopped trusting my own voice, as writers like to call it. Or maybe it was around the time I stopped thinking I even had or should have my own voice. I never thought about voice as a kid, I just knew I liked writing poems often while sitting in the top of an old apple tree in our backyard. They went things like, we watched the sky with all our might and hope sight we'd see a satellite, we missed the man-made moon in flight but gained the glory of a starry night. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff like that. And in, In grade school, my dream was to write and illustrate children's books. And one I did at that time was about a giant dog that fell to Earth from a cloud and nearly starved to death because it could only eat cloud mush and it fell in California and there was no clouds.
6: (laughs) Uh,
7: Then uh, there was also a patriotic puppet show about a Russian space dog whose Sputnik satellite crashed near New York City. I have no idea why I was drawn to dogs falling out of the sky. Maybe it was uh, our cocker spaniel, Ricky, had choked to death on a chicken bone, and the consolation dog, Ginger, smelled so bad we gave her away. (laughs) From an early age, though, I was set on writing. Exactly what became less clear as I grew older? I probably finally chose journalism because, one, I realized I could not draw. Two, I would never be Walt Whitman or Flannery O'Connor. And three, my mother had been a newspaper reporter and my father went to journalism school. So I enrolled in his alma mater, the University of Missouri Journalism School. We called it J-School. It was like a boot camp. J-School uh, was like a boot camp, except that you did not have to have your hair cut or salute. It was a heavy load of craft-focused classes aimed at reshaping your writing and to some extent your worldview. If you failed, You were encouraged to return to your English literature classes, or maybe take up welding or automotive repair. (laughs) The rules of the craft were clear. Find the lead, back it up, attribute everything. Stick to the facts, don't assume or presume, don't conclude. Use adjectives and adverbs sparingly. Avoid fancy verbs, stay objective. Write it fast, keep it short. The word allegedly became central in my vocabulary. He said, she said, police said, allegedly. I once found myself telling a boyfriend I loved him, while under my breath I added,
1: allegedly.
7: (laughs) So here I am, I'm in my first semester at J School, living alone in a tiny one-room, second-floor apartment. The night of that winter's first snow, I sit in the window and I watch the storm swirl under the streetlight. I'm overcome with the same feelings that used to inspire my apple tree musings. I moved to create a poem, something I hadn't tried for years. I want to write about how all those tiny individual snowflakes transformed the world like a revolution. It was the 1960s at the time. But I can't find the words or the rhythm. What's the lead? Even though I know it's silly, I'm stymied by lack of attribution. Who am I to say snow is revolutionary? The dream happened not long after that. Remember the dream? This story is supposed to be about a dream. (laughs) The apartment I'm in has a Murphy bed that pulls down out of the wall. And when it is pulled down, it blocks the door to the hall. So you can only get the door open maybe three or four inches at most. So much for fire codes in the apartment building I was in. I wake, or I think I wake, to the sound of voices in the hall. A man and a woman are talking passionately. I can only hear the tone, but I want to hear the words. Somehow I squeeze through that door. The couple just stares at me. I'm standing in front of them in my nightgown, no wonder. (laughs) I'm so embarrassed, I run down the hall and I run up two flights of stairs. At the top of the second flight, there's a door. When I open it, I am looking at an empty balcony. Empty, but there's unused, unrolled chicken wire all over all the seats. It's a tangled mess. However, I clamber over the chicken wire, and when I'm in the middle of the balcony, I stop and I look down. Women in long evening gowns and men in tuxedos. They're drinking champagne. They're talking. They're laughing. And they glide elegantly around this brightly lit stage below. Their conversations are witty, smooth, and honest. And I think, oh, Mike. God, I wish I could write like that. <laughs> Witty, smooth, honest. Immediately, the light on the stage dims, and every conversation, every movement, turns stiff and awkward and forced. The man from the hall caught up with me. I guess he'd followed me up the two flights of stairs.
5: <laughs> what the
7: hell's wrong with you, he demands. And the word, it sticks in my throat, spun. Spon! Spon! Finally, I spit it out, Spontaneity, and I run away. (laughs) The dream shifts suddenly, as dreams have a way of doing, and I'm back in the Murphy bed, but someone is reaching through that slim opening of the door. I try to push the arm and the hand away, and after that, I wake up, for real. My head is at the foot of the bed, near the door, and my own hand is pushing on my face. (laughs) So, what did I do with this string? Not much. I wrote it down, immediately. And I thought about it for maybe a couple of hours, but not too deeply. I knew it wasn't just about writing. Was I afraid of missing out? Failing to live in the moment? Carpe diem, go with the flow? Going with the flow was highly valued in the late 1960s. (laughs) I know, I know I felt admiration, maybe even envy, when a guy who lived in the apartment just below me on, the, on this building took off one morning for California, just spontaneously took off for California, fleeing the Midwest in college and I think his mother.
5: <laughs>
7: it feels so good, he wrote on a postcard mailed back to me, to watch the sunset with the entire United States at my back. <laughs> but the flow for me right then was J-school. I wasn't inclined to explore whether or not it was the right flow. It was the river I was in, and I had to do everything I could to just keep up with the current and watch out for the boulders. In fact, I never was very introspective. I thought of myself as a shallow stream running fast. No deep pools for me. That might have been why I was drawn to journalism. (laughs) Don't need a lot of introspection there. Mm So I got my B.J., Bachelor of Journalism, with honors, and then a job at a newspaper in Delaware, and I bounced around a bit, ending up working first for the Associated Press and later at colleges and universities, and along the way I grew up, I had a kid, I fought a couple of good battles, I wrote a few things that felt, if not witty, at least honest and well-crafted. But I had not revisited the dream until recently, trying to figure out what it may have meant In my life. And I did that because I just signed up to tell this story. (laughs) And and I wanted to know if I had just ignored what it meant and somehow diminished my life because of that. And I have to confess, I still don't know. Like a good reporter, though, I asked friends what they thought. How do they define spontaneity? Most thought it's often a good attribute, but only in moderation. And like a good reporter, of course, I googled it. <laughs> FYI, the philosopher Immanuel Kant had a lot to say about spontaneity, most of which went completely over my head.
5: <laughs>
7: so I tried to define how spontaneous a person I am. Definitely, when it comes to my humor or observations or assessments, I think I'm pretty spontaneous, unfortunately, sometimes. Um, but less so with actions. But not always. Just one example. Almost 20 years ago, I was on a whitewater rafting adventure in Costa Rica with about a dozen other people. We stopped for lunch near a very high waterfall. A large tree limb hung out uh, 30 or 40 feet above the deep pool of water at the foot of the waterfall. We were told it was safe to jump. Well, it sometimes takes me more than an hour to get up the nerve to jump into the Atlantic Ocean even on a very hot day. I didn't have a second thought that day. As I jumped off the tree branch, and by the way, I was the only one who did, (laughs) my legs and arms were flying in every direction, and someone took a photo. When I got home, not long after I got home, I learned that I had cancer. I kept that snapshot close during that battle. It helped. For a long time, maybe most of my adult life, it's felt like I've been navigating one river or another, going with the current, dodging boulders, keeping my head above water, just a shallow stream running fast. So in part of doing the research for this story, I dug out that 20-year-old snapshot, and I've been fantasizing, as Pat told you, on getting a camper and just taking off, maybe to see what it feels like to have the whole United States behind me when the sun (laughs) sets, maybe to honor that college dream. It just may be time for one more spontaneous leap in my life.
3: Yes Kathy, it's time. (laughs) I'm going with you. Need a passenger?
5: Yes.
3: Next up, Sharon Jones Jenkins. She's currently writing a book about her life growing up right here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire where she was raised in a family of 13 children. Sharon moved to Los Angeles for a while to study voice and became an accomplished performer. She has performed with legendary jazz artists all across the country and currently performs throughout New England, where we can catch her at Demeter's Steakhouse. Is that how you pronounce Demeter's? Yeah, this, sure. um, right, Dolphin Striker Press Room, Rudy's, all here in Portsmouth, or down in Boston at the Beehive and the Beat Hotel. She is a vocal coach who considers herself to be a certified storyteller. So right now we're going to find out about that. Yeah, gonna Sharon's going be- to come be- up and tell her story that she decided to title Making It Big in a Small Town Slash my dream was bigger than this. <laughs> <laughs> Come on up, Karen. Okay. Uh, is the clock
5: picking
8: up? Okay, can I yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, <what's> help? <laughs> all... uh, I, yeah. I was wondering where the clock <laughs> like was. Uh uh, certified storyteller. I just wanted to clean that up. I, I didn't uh consi- I don't consider myself a, uh, a certified storyteller, oh. a- after tonight maybe, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll All right, I don't wanna bring that down. In, in the uh, business I'm in, it's been said that the more jittery you become before performance, the luckier you get throughout the performance I don't quite believe that, but that's what that's what's been said. This story takes me and you uh, back into the 60s where I became an entertainer at that point while I was in high school but to start. I always wanted to sing, it was my dream to sing and my grandfather made me a small stage out of a little box when I was five or six years old. And he lived with us in the big house that we had here in Portsmouth. And I would wake him up in the morning and say, Grandpa, I'm ready to sing. And he'd clear his throat and say, Grandpa's not ready. (laughs) Well, I had learned this wonderful song that you could belt out. It was by Julius LaRosa. And Julius LaRosa was on the Arthur Godfrey Show. And he sang, Anywhere I Wander. Anywhere I roam, because I'm in the arms of my darling again, and my heart shall find a home, or something like that. And as I got older, and ended up, of course, in high school, in Portsmouth High School, we had a wonderful uh, music director. They collaborated with their music, uh, William Alwell, and Warren Muchmore. And they wrote these beautiful scores for these performers that would perform in a show uh, called the Portsmouth High School Minstrel Show. Well, the minstrel show really meant that everyone uh, was in blackface. And, And that was the backdrop that I would sing against. And the choir had about maybe 40 or 50 people in it, and uh, they would sit behind. You've got to imagine the whole choir would be behind, sitting there draped with a, a black uh, cloth over them and face blacked and their lips painted very red. And, oh. and for three years, I went out there and sang in front of that backdrop. Well, they, they used me as the closer uh, for the show. And that last year, I struggled with. Um, there were all sorts of things going on in the world. Um, we had the Civil Rights Movement and Black Musicians were leaving the United States and moving to Europe, mainly uh, Paris. And we had Nina Simone who was our our civil rights entertainer. I think she actually got thrown out of the United States for a while and she ended up in, in Paris as well. Well, this beautiful music that was being written for that show, um, we had an orchestra, and Mr. Elwell was in the pit, we called it back then, directing. And I was in back of the curtain, the big red velvet curtain. We had to have one strong body on that side (laughs) and another strong body to pull the ropes so the curtain would open up. Well... The curtain had opened. They they opened the curtains and they were about to say now ladies and gentlemen, Miss Sharon Jones and I would always get an applause before I even started singing. I never understood that. I thought maybe I don't have to do anything.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
8: so uh I didn't go out there that night when the curtain opened up, and Mr. Elwell came back to the stage, and he said, uh, "The way he stood there and looked at me, I knew he felt what I was feeling." And I said, "You know, I can't go out there tonight." He said, "Well, what, 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 what what's going on?" I said, "I just don't feel like I can do this." It's It's embarrassing. Um, It's it's making me feel badly. I said, my parents are in the audience, my siblings, some of my my friends, and I've been doing this for three years. And at 17 years old now, I'm going to graduate this year, and I won't do another show here at the Portsmouth High School. And I would like my dream to be a little bit Bigger than this, I would—I gotta add something to this dream that I've been coddling for years. That I would walk out on the stage and people would applaud, and and that made me feel wonderful because I was always scared to walk out there anyway. But as soon as the orchestra started and and the music started, for some reason I came alive, you know. And uh, this particular night, I, I just—I I can't go on. I started crying. Well, before I knew it, um, he had ordered that they close the curtain back up. The curtains were closed again. The place was packed to capacity. The audience went silent because the curtains were drawn right after they were open. Now they were closed. They didn't know what was going Mm -hmm. on. Well... He ordered that the curtain reopen now. And when it did, the whole backdrop had washed all of the makeup off. And I turned around and took a quick glimpse, and there they were. And they had tears, and my sister Karen was part of that choir. Well, Mr. Elwell stood up like a wonderful maestro he was, and, and I walked out. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Sharon Jones. And I walked out and stood on the stage, and the whole audience stood up and applauded for a long period of time. It was exhilarating. I started singing, belting it out. I had a big voice when I, as a 17-year-old, you know. And... Uh, My song that I had chosen for that night was Just The Way You Look Tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Had no idea what was going to happen. And at the end of the song, up out of the chairs, they came again, resounding applause. I took my bow and I walked off the stage and I said, now that is a dream come true. Well, two or three years later, Mr. Elwell ran into me downtown, sitting, having coffee. He said, how long are you gonna be here? Can you stay here, I, I have something for you. I said, sure. He went home and came back, and he put that tape in my hand of that performance that night. Oh, wow. Just the way you look tonight. Mm-hmm. Huh. The beautiful part of that whole evening was that the Portsmouth Minstrel Shows were never called the Portsmouth Minstrel Shows again. They were called the Clipper Show. <laughs> Thank you.
3: <laughs> Thank you, Sharon. Good story. Now we have L. Portia. He lives in Lee, New Hampshire recently retired from various careers, including French restaurateur, an adjunct faculty member at UNH and a counselor who helped returning veterans from World War II through Iraq and Afghanistan to manage and heal emotional and spiritual wounds resulting from their war experiences. Al has been working on a series of stories and escapades about his time spent in the U.S. Army in the late 1960s and early 70s He brings us another tale tonight. This one is titled, When Undesirable is Most Desirable.
9: That's good. I brought this up in case I have a Marco Rubio moment. I thought I could reach (laughs) over.
5: That's
9: good to see such a great crowd here. My story starts in 1971, and I keep having this dream, and I'm in the Army, and I can't get out.
5: (laughs) And the worst part
9: about this dream is when I wake up, I am in the Army, (laughs) and I can't get out. Let me explain. 1968, I was drafted, went through the usual basic training, advanced training, and eventually went to Vietnam, 1969, spent a year there as an infantry soldier, uh, it was a rather interesting year. I'm happy to say that when I got out of the military, ultimately I got an honorable discharge, and I was able to uh, find meaningful work uh, for a significant part of my career counseling combat veterans who have fought in our many wars over the last 60 years, dealing with what happens to soldiers when they go to war. Uh, you've heard it called post-traumatic stress disorder emotional, spiritual wounds, as you mentioned, and uh, that was great, but I have to tell you it wasn't a straight line from my experiences in Vietnam to that honorable discharge and meaningful work. That's my story this evening. So when I came back from Vietnam, I guess I probably had some post-traumatic stress myself when I look back on it, and I decided I was... uh, all done, playing soldier. And I went AWOL. I went AWOL for nine months. So uh, I spent that time hitchhiking around the country, doing various odds and ends jobs, living hand to mouth. And uh, after a while, after nine months of that, I thought, well, you know, this can't go on forever. So I decided uh, maybe I better see about trying to resolve the situation. So I contacted an attorney. And much to my surprise, the military had, there were so many people AWOL at this point in time, thousands, tens of thousands, and it looked bad for the military. So they let it be known that there were three bases that they established around the country where they had a program for folks just like me. If you would turn yourself in, they would process you out with an administrative discharge, an undesirable discharge but it was you would get out of the military and as the title of my story said at that point in time I considered an undesirable discharge most desirable (laughs) so I uh, as it it just couldn't go on I mean I'd been uh, living uh, underground so to speak on the run and uh, you know there weren't many options I guess I could have uh, gone to Canada and given up my citizenship uh, I didn't want to do that, although when I look at the current American political situation, maybe not a bad option. But now I turn myself in, in this, uh, at this place called Fort Meade, which is in Maryland. It's uh, located halfway between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. So the military being the military, of course, it takes them six to eight weeks to throw you out. So I present myself to Fort Meade. And the first thing that happens is they put you back to military appearance, shave your head, and cut the beard off, put you back in uniform, and then they put us in a uh, compound that was called Personnel Confinement Facilities. <laughs> kind of sounds like a jail, but, but not exactly. I have to describe this place to you. It was about the size of a city block, and it was surrounded by two chain-link fences uh, that had razor wire connecting the two at the top, and there were guard towers around it. And uh, there were several buildings in this huge uh, complex, uh, barracks, uh, which, if you don't know, are sort of like two-story bunkhouses, about 80 feet long each. Uh, There was a mess hall, which is an interesting choice of words by the military, (laughs) uh, given what they produce for cuisine. uh, They call it the mess hall where you eat. And there were some administrative buildings. So basically, it was a stockade, but it was the old stockade. They had built a new stockade at Fort Meade, a more modern facility, and this place was exclusively for folks like myself who had had lengthy walls and turned themselves in. There must have been a couple hundred of us there when I got there. So I have to tell you how PCF personnel confinement facilities differs from a, a regular stockade. Uh, the guard towers were empty, nobody up there with guns, and even though there were all these fences and the razor wire, the main gate, we could walk in and out of at the end of the day. They would All day long, of course, they would have us chopping wood or doing KP in the kitchen or painting old buildings, typical nonsense, meaningless military jobs. But then at the, after the five o'clock formation, we could walk out of the gate and you could go anywhere on the base as long as you were back by six the next morning for formation. Well, Fort Meade at that point in time was what they call an open military base, which right. means they didn't check cars driving on or off or people walking on and off. So in reality, you could go anywhere in the world. So I would walk out of PCF, I would walk off the base, and I would hitchhike to my friends who had lived in a group house, an urban commune, if you will, at DuPont Circle. And, uh, you know, the people living at this house were your typical counterculture types. This is you know, 1970s, 71, and uh, hippies, if you will. And so we'd hang out, drink a little wine, smoke a little weed, play music into the wee hours of the morn, and then one of them would drive me back to the base. So I'd be there before the 6 a.m. formation. Well, I couldn't do this every day, so I would take a little bit of marijuana back with me just to tide me over for a few days until I got back down to see my friends again. So one particular morning, we, I was out back behind the barracks, smoking a joint with another guy who had just turned himself in the night before and so they had him in fatigues but they hadn't cut his hair yet so here's this guy in military fatigues with long hair he looked absolutely absurd i said hey welcome back to pcf let's go out back and celebrate and smoke a joint so we're back there toking up and unfortunately the wind must have been blowing the wrong way that day because all of a sudden coming around the corner of the barracks Here's a sergeant who knew me, and you know, the smell of marijuana is oh, yeah. thick in the air. It's a cold December day, and uh, I immediately i had gloves on. I just crushed the joint out in my hand, and as this sergeant approached us, he said, Porsche, give me what you have in your hand. And I immediately popped the half of smoke joint into my mouth and swallowed it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this infuriated him, right? He was like, oh. And so he's marching us over to the orderly room. That's the administrative building where all the senior-type functionaries are. And, And so now I have a problem because in my pocket I have a little... 35 millimeter aluminum film canister when we used to have single lens reflex cameras the film would come in either plastic ones or metal ones with a screw lid and i didn't have film in this little canister (laughs) (laughs) i had a little marijuana in this canister and i knew once we got to the orderly room we were going to be searched also i have to mention that the marijuana we had smoked was pretty darn good so (laughs) i'm clearly not Thinking clearly and probably <laughs> acting in my own best self interest under the circumstances. Probably has something to do with what happens over the next few minutes. So, is, there, is he marching us towards the orderly room? I feel sorry, I don't know whatever happened to this poor guy who just turned him in the day before. He's probably <laughs> totally flipped out. But I took off running. But, <laughs> But this compound, this personnel confinement facilities, we were at the far end of it. It's several hundred yards long. And I didn't think much for my chances of running several hundred yards with this sergeant in hot pursuit and getting out of the place. So I dashed into the first barracks that we came to, happened to be the one I was assigned to. These are two story affairs, ran up the steps, wheeled around the corner. I've got the thing out of my pocket now, fling it across the floor, run down to the far end. There's really nowhere to go. It's about 80 feet down the long building. I turn around. Just then the sergeant has come up and turned, and turned the corner and he's in the room. And if we had had guns, it would have been perfect, like a shootout. But fortunately, neither of us did. So the sergeant, of course, has figured out what's going on. He heard this metal container clattering across the linoleum floor and is immediately looking for it. And sure enough, there it is sitting there underneath one of the beds. <laughs> So he bends down and crawls under the bed to get that, and I said to myself, I should have never come back, but I'm getting the heck out of here. Mm -hmm. So behind me, even though it was sort of a dead end, there was a fire exit door under a little (laughs) wooden platform with a trellis down the side of the building. Well, I went out. I didn't bother with the trellis. I jumped, and I'm running again. But I still don't think much of my chances of running the length of this whole compound. But then I remembered when I had turned myself in four weeks before, I'd met a chap there who said, you know, if you ever have to leave here by way other than the front gate, there's a place where the first, one of the cyclone fences, has been kind of dug up underneath. Remember, it wasn't really a prison anymore. It was just the old prison. (laughs) And he said, you know, that you could get under there and then run between the two fences to a guard tower. And the guard towers were built so that half of it was in between the two fences and the other half was all the way to the outside so you could get over the razor wire but I didn't know exactly where that was because I never thought I was going to have to leave that way. Right. So I, I had a general sense that I'm looking for it, and all of a sudden, three Afro-American GIs come out of nowhere, and one of them grabs my arms and pins them behind my back and says, I've got my three-day pass. Oh. Well, obviously, yeah. the, the sergeant had gotten tired of personally chasing me when I jumped <laughs> off the fire escape. And there were half a dozen, dozen guys who were in the barracks, wondering what the heck was going on with this guy running through here and then jumping off, and these guys came and and grabbed me. Well, it's true that in the military at this time, there were some racial tensions, but I always befriended everyone. I got along with everyone, and this just blew my mind, and I remember saying, I said, I can't believe this. This sergeant just busted me for marijuana, and now you my own brothers are going to turn me in. And the guy, had he released my hands, he said... He busted you for dope, man. He said, you go ahead, get out of here. (laughs) I said, well, I'm looking for the place. He said, it's right there. Pointing to the place that I was unable to detect before. (laughs) So under the fence, over the guard tower, down the other side, I'm off a PCF now. But I still got to get off the base. Okay, because of the exit to the nearest, there's several points of entrance or exit to an Army base, but the nearest one was several blocks away. I also had lost my hat when I jumped, my baseball-style cap when I jumped off the balcony. And when you're out of uniform in the military, it makes you stand out even more. So I didn't think I was going to make it off the base, but I immediately came across a building that was said, Condemn, do not enter. This is for me. I immediately went in there, two-story building, went up to the second floor, and I was able to peer out the window, and I could see the military police, the MP cars, cruising around. But, you know, it wasn't like I was some serious criminal. After an hour that dissipated, they gave up. And I was also able to observe from this perch another building where soldiers would drive up, park their car, had some paperwork. They'd get out, and they'd go in. Five minutes later, they'd come out get back in their car and drive away. So I was watching this closely to try to identify someone who I thought I could trust. And when I found that person that looked like it could be someone I could trust, I dashed out of the building, ran up to their car as they got in to drive away, jumped in the passenger seat and said, you gotta get me off this base. And he did. And took me to a gas station off the base. I called on a pay phone my friends at DuPont Circle. They came to my rescue, went back to the house at DuPont Circle. It's now one in the afternoon. It's been a pretty long morning. It's pretty crazy. So I call my lawyer and I relate to him the events of the past morning. And he said, you what? <laughs> he, said, he couldn't believe it. He said, it was, it was incredulous. But he said, go back. He said, don't let on you ever left the base because then they can't charge Otherwise, they could charge you with another AWOL. He said, forget about the little bit of marijuana. You've already proved yourself more than undesirable. They aren't going to care about that. So I was feeling pretty depressed because the whole reason I turned myself in was I wanted to resolve this AWOL status. And now I was right back where I started. So I did, I went back. My friend drove me back to the base, left me off a block from the entrance to the personnel confinement facilities. I walked in, walked the entire length of the compound unchallenged, and walked into the orderly room where they were trying to take me 10 hours earlier, and who's sitting behind the desk but the very sergeant who'd been chasing me. And he said, Porsche, I'm glad to see you made the right decision and came back. I immediately sensed that that wasn't true. so indeed they now put me in the real stockade and so I spent the next two days in a cell block and then they put me in a barracks in that in that compound which wasn't unlike the PCF except now the guards towers had guards they had guns they had searchlights there would be no running from this place for the next two weeks I had no idea what was going to happen. I was sort of incommunicado, no contact with anyone. I was very concerned that they might, instead of giving me that administrative discharge, decide to prosecute me for the nine months of AWOL and the marijuana. But two weeks later, all of a sudden the orders came down for the administrative discharge, just as they would have if these events had never happened that I just shared with you. And of course, the military being the military, orders must be followed. And so at three in the afternoon, I walked out of the stockade, off of that base, and thumbed a ride back to my friends at DuPont Circle, a free man. I didn't need any, anything to alter my mood to enhance the feelings of joy I was feeling at that time, finally being free of the military. I still occasionally have a dream that focuses on my various military experiences and exploits. But now when I wake up, I'm a civilian, I'm living in New Hampshire, and I'm with friends and family. Thank you.